Hello, humans. Welcome to Bizzlecast, episode six. This is a very special Bizzlecast for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's the first Bizzlecast where I'm actually interviewing somebody else, and as much as I love hearing myself talk, and it seems like some people at least like hearing me talk, um, Bizzlecast was always meant to have a um, a, a large interview component. Sometimes it'll be with one guest like today, other times it'll be more like a round table or a conference call with multiple people. But it's also very special because the first person I'm interviewing is my best friend and you know I would love to do this uh, interview with him no matter what he was doing in his life but he just has such a cool life story um, in post-college of all the stuff he's done and is now doing in San Francisco after we used to live together in New York um, that I think you all are really going to be into. There's actually some synergy between some of the stuff I've talked about, um, whether it's sort of Taoist philosophy, talking about human potential, whether we're talking about not getting caught up in hypermaterialism, and a lot of those other philosophical um, but practical subjects that um, I've talked about in previous podcasts. So, Smiley, Adam Smiley Pozwalski, how should we refer to you? You can talk to me as Smiley Bizzle. All right. Um, and actually, your book, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute, is, I believe, under the name Smiley Pozwalski, right? That's right. All right. So we'll get to that. So um, uh, we'll get into a whole lot of different stuff here. Um, but just to quickly recap, Smiley and I met in college at Wesleyan University. We ended up living together sophomore year, sort of by coincidence. Um, the housing situation at Wesleyan is pretty complex, so I won't go into that too much, but needless to say, uh, myself and Smiley and our other best friend, Andreas, um, ended up um, living together for much of college and then lived together for a couple of years in New York after college. Um, and while we now live in different parts of the country, remain very, very close and are all doing very different things um, that I think if you went back to college, I'm not sure we would have predicted that we would end up in this place. So... Um, smiles. Why don't you give just a little uh, intro about yourself? Where are you from? Um, where'd you grow up? How'd you end up at Wesleyan? And uh, you know, sort of some of your stops on the way to where you are now. Yeah. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on Bizzlecast. I'm a huge fan. Um, everything okay? Everything yeah, well? I just said thanks. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I heard I heard some muttering. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah I wasn't so I wasn't expecting someone to say they're a big fan, actually. I was <laughs> I, I, I couldn't believe that anyone would be a big fan of the Bizzlecast, so thank you. Uh, yeah, it's great to be here. I'm a big fan of Bizzlecast. I love getting a chance to to share share my story and kind of, you know, philosophize on life. So yeah, I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, which is part of Boston. Uh, it's a city, pretty urban place. And um, was very excited to go to Wesleyan University, which is, you know, uh, a kind of a place that has its uh, fair share of um, crazy people, but also really brilliant people. And I think it was it was a place that, um, you know, I think you and I both feel we met some of the the most inspiring and interesting people in our lives. Absolutely. And uh, I, for me, it was a place that, you know, I went to a big urban public high school. So I went to high school with about 2,000 kids, which is actually almost the size of Wesleyan, which is kind of crazy. Wow. Uh, so big school. Um, there are a lot of great things happening uh, in Cambridge and where I went to school. But it, there's also kind of a, a culture of, 
you know, for, for the most part where learning really isn't cool mm-hmm. and it's not, not that cool to be smart. Right. You know, so I'd be in class sometimes and the teacher would be like, you know, okay, so we're going to talk about the, you know, the papers you all wrote or we're going to talk about, um, you know, this James Baldwin book or, you know, this Fitzgerald book or whatever. And people are like, you didn't do the reading, did you? Right. Like, you didn't read that. You didn't, you didn't do the paper. Like, mm-hmm. right. Like you mm-hmm. were, and I was like, yeah, I read the, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. read that book. It was awesome. Yeah. You should have read it. Well, and actually you know? I've, I've always wanted to have this conversation with you because I went to a very high end public school in the suburbs of Pennsylvania. That's actually the number one rated public school at the moment. My parents specifically moved to the suburbs. So I would end up at this high school. So I was basically taking college classes in high school and I'm just extremely fortunate. And I know from you know knowing you well, that that wasn't the case with you. Um, now you are from a family that values education very highly. So I'm assuming that kind of factored into your ability to kind of transcend the bullshit, right? Yeah, and you know, and and there are definitely smart kids that go to to go that go to Ringe where I went to high school, and there are amazing teachers. But there's also a lot of you know students who who really don't want to be there, whose whose parents really aren't pushing them to be there, and there are a lot of teachers actually who just are kind of throwing in the towel. And you know, in a public in a public system, you're just going to have some people that slip through the cracks, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's how it works. And you kind of have you know the the kids that really want to be there, and the parents that are supporting them, and and have the ability to support them financially and and emotionally. And then people that are kind of just kind of just there, and 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 no one's really helping them, which is really unfortunate. I think is a big problem we have in public education. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was it was pretty pretty amazing to go from there, a place where you know there was a group of let's call them dorks or nerds. Um, Yay, nerds. Shout out. Yeah, shout out to nerds that that were doing the reading, that were writing papers, that were trying to get good grades, um, which I was probably among. And we were definitely in the minority at 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 my high school. And then to go to a place like Wesleyan where I was like, oh, my God, everyone here is way smarter than me. And it's cool to do the homework and it's cool to do the reading. And like I should have done the extra reading. And oh, my God, like I can let the girl that like I have a huge crush on and is super cute wants to talk about the reading like oh my god that's awesome like yeah. it's cool to be smart yeah and and it, it, that was to me so, so that was like the single biggest thing when i got there i was like this is awesome because i never really felt that i was like wow like dorks are kind of losers um you know no one reads books everyone is kind of you know smoking or drinking or you know getting laid or whatever the coolest things to do were and then to get to a place like wesleyan where i was like oh my god like you can be a dork, you can be a nerd, you can watch movies and read books and still right. be cool. That was amazing. Well, and, you know, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll move forward from high school in a second, but I think it's actually really interesting. If you think about it, buddy, we haven't actually talked that much about our high school experiences over the years. Um, and part of that with me is that I don't, I'm not really friends with a lot of my high school friends anymore. Um, it's not that I don't like them. It was just, as you pointed out, all my good friends are from Wesleyan now. You know, I just... Formed amazing relationships, but um, just to you know talk a little bit sort of about political um, just um, education. Uh, as I mentioned in my uh, Bizzlecast 5.0 episode, where I defend Joss Whedon, um, the writer director of the Avengers and other movies, who went to Wesleyan, went to the film program at Wesleyan, which you actually graduated from, correct? Correct. Um, and barely. Uh, Barely. Um, And Josh is the perfect example of um, someone who really took a lot of Wesleyan-ish type stuff 
and, and even now sort of takes a, a sort of quirky indie approach to his to his stuff. Um, but uh, you know, but is also mainstream. And I think um, you know, in terms of me growing up and you, we actually have a lot of similarities in our backgrounds. I mean, we come from you know, I, I mean. It's hard to know how to classify, but somewhere between sort of, you know, like middle, upper, middle class kind of backgrounds, I guess you'd say. Like, we were we were okay growing up. It's not like our families were rich. Um, but education was important, and family was very important. Even our parents, I think, are very similar. We've talked about that before, and we're very close to our sisters. But because you grew up in a city, and because you went to a, such a diverse school, um, I think that, you know, when, when I met you, you already had a, a, um, a little bit more global understanding, even though I was a um, uh, very outspoken liberal voice at my high school, which is very Christian conservative, um, I just wasn't exposed to that kind of diversity. And so Wesleyan was a bit of a shock to my system because when I went to Wesleyan, I was the most liberal person I knew, and it wasn't even close. And then I get to Wesleyan, it's like, wow, I haven't even seen some of this stuff. And that was a tough adjustment for me. Um, so I don't know what your... Um, impression was, I'll just say that um, as much as I fought back against some of the sort of far left issues, on a few issues at Wesleyan, I definitely left Wesleyan way more liberal than when I got there. Um, and I, I don't know if you had a similar experience or whether you were already sort of where you ended up from kind of a political, uh, intellectual standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, my high school was, I think, about 60% minority, I forget the number, 50 to 60% minority. Um, so actually, I think only about 40% white, and, and then so mostly black, Latino, Asian American. Um, Cambridge is a pretty diverse place. Um, obviously, you have Harvard and MIT, and uh, there's a lot of wealth, but it's also quite diverse, especially at the public school. So I kind of grew up around people that were different than me. I grew, grew up around kind of people talking about race and equality and mm -hmm. privilege and these types of things which definitely primed me for Wesleyan in a way that I think a lot of people come to Wesleyan and, and are kind of a little shocked because you have, you know, your, your people are so left and so liberal and kind of really politically correct or politically, like politically correct in a way that is beyond politically correct. Right. For the, it's for like, the aggra the it's like aggressively politically correct. Yeah. Like, you know, pasture raised eggs versus, you know, cage free eggs. Right. And, you know, you, everything that people say, you kind of have to like tiptoe around everything. But, you know, I do think that one of the reasons that attract that I was attracted to Wesleyan because it was a place where there were a lot of people that were, you know, anti-war, anti-Bush, we were going to college during the Bush administration, uh, which was a nightmare. Um, so definitely a place where, you know, that, that was kind of, had always been this kind of, um, place where liberal voices, um, you know, were able to shine. And of course, you know, you mentioned Josh Whedon and kind of definitely as a school has a, has a tradition of, uh, of a large feminist movement, large, uh, gay rights movement, mm -hmm. um, you know, black power movement and all these kind of things were definitely pretty exciting about Wesleyan. Of course, being at Wesleyan, it's, it's tough because I think that a lot of people support those issues, but then there's such a, you know, the, the energy around them at Wesleyan can be so contentious that sometimes it's actually quite difficult for people to voice their opinion. Because if you say anything that, you know, and you, you experience this, but say anything that maybe pisses people off or comes off as conservative or comes off as, hey, what about this? Or what about these people? Or this is a little nuanced. Um, you can get thrown to the stake. 
So, um, yeah, know, I, I, I know a little I, bit I, about that. So I think, um, you know, I, I, I love Wesleyan for its, for its political culture and I love it for its kind of, you know, just curriculum and the types of professors that go there and what they're studying and what they're writing about. Absolutely. And I hope that, um, that it hasn't changed in, in recent years. Do you hear these rumors that, you know, Wesleyan's becoming whitewashed or becoming more mainstream or it's just all lacrosse players now or it's all bankers and consultants, um, which would seem like a shame because it's such right. a school where, you know, like the music program's amazing, the film program's amazing. amazing. It's always been a place where, for kind of activists and artists. Right. Um, and I hope that it still is, and I, I assume that it still is. Um, you know, from our year alone, you've got, you know, the, the management and uh, MGMT, for everyone that doesn't know them as the management like we do. <laughs> um, and, you know, you and Eric obviously started Modiba. Um, and I think part of that was because of, of Wesleyan and the music department and the world music connections you guys had and the classes you were taking. Um, and then obviously the rich history of the film department, which was, which was great for me to study. And a lot of people ask me about, uh, film because, you know, at, at Wesleyan, it's kind of a, it's definitely seen as an elite major. It's hard to get into. I think it's one of the only majors where you have to like get a certain grade point average to get in. You have to take certain classes. They cap the major at a certain size. Right. So like not even, not everyone that wants to be a film major can be a film major, which is kind of pretentious um, right. and annoying for a lot of people. Um, so people are always like, so film major Wesleyan and I'm, and I'll, and I'll do these talks now about careers. And I'm like, for the record, I'm, I'm now 31. I'm doing nothing related to film. So well, kind it, of what, what you majored in college doesn't matter. But in right. a way that, 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 that major did shape kind of a lot of, you know, my, my thoughts about storytelling and, and documentary and kind of how people tell stories. So it still was an amazing major. Well, and this is what's so brilliant, not just about Wesleyan, but about getting a liberal arts education um, and you know with my parents it wasn't a tough sell for me to go to a liberal arts school but um, if it had been my dad who's a psychologist but he works and coaches um, executives and corporations very strongly believes that even if you're going to end up in law or finance or even medicine you need to get a liberal arts education just because that's your opportunity to really expand your view on the world. And if you had told me going into Wesleyan that I was going to A, end up focusing my studies on Taoism and Islamic mysticism, and B, start a music company while at college working with African musicians that would become like a major part of my life and career, I would have had no idea. And as you point out, you're doing stuff now completely unrelated to film for the most part. Um, I, while still somewhat involved with my music company, am um, moving into teaching in other professions um, and is, is removed from both my previous profession as well as uh, a lot of the stuff I studied. And so um, just to sort of wrap up the, the Wesleyan stuff, it, I guess I would just say that as turned off as I was by some of the just ridiculously, almost cartoonishly radical activism there, because of how good the professors were and how interesting the courses were, the reason I became more liberal at Wesleyan was not because of the activists. It was because of my professors in certain classes. I don't know if you found that to be the case. Um, I mean, I definitely, you know, I, 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 I had some great professors. I also and I don't mean, let me just stop you for a second. I don't necessarily mean, you know, just liberal from a purely political standpoint. I just mean in terms of expanding your field of knowledge and understanding right. and experience. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I, I go back and forth on the liberal arts education. I think I've told you that, you know, my dad is not too keen about Wesleyan. He kind of, 
Um, right. It's not that he thinks it was a waste of money, but it's kind of one of these things like you spent a lot of money, <laughs> took out student loans, and you, you, you graduated not really knowing what the hell you were doing with your life, which I would say is probably true for the majority of Wesleyan graduates <laughs> and or what, a Wesleyan alum in general. Sure. Um, and it's kind of like, it's not like, was it worth it? But it's, you know, it's one of these things where it's like, you do have to wonder, you know, you take these classes. I mean, I took, you know, intro to dance senior year. I took, you know, earth, earth resources. I took, you know, <laughs> American independent film, all amazing classes, but you know, are they related at all to like how I make a living now or how I've made a living the last 10 years with the exclusion of, of working in film for a couple of years in New York? Not really. And, you know, so you have to kind of question the value of the liberal arts education. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of the idea of small classes, of, of learning, of discussion right. that people learn when they're kind of debating each other, when they're having these conversations. You can't do that online. You can't mm -hmm. necessarily do that with a book or, or an online course. But Wesleyan is very expensive. I mean, I, I love your dad and, and your family and totally respect where he's coming from. And um, I, I, as a quick aside, I actually am starting to think now that community colleges are going to be free, essentially, because of um, what Obama announced in the State of the Union speech, we'll see if that's feasible. Um, and the fact that our world and our country economically is so hyper-specialized, I, I don't think liberal arts education is for everyone. And... Um, you know, I'm actually working with a lot of students now doing SAT tutoring, but some of them I'm also doing college counseling. And I'm trying to get them to understand, you know, the cost-benefit analysis, especially now that schools like Wesleyan are like 50000 a year or something like that. Or, I think, uh, 60. Yeah, and, you know, that, especially a school like that, which doesn't translate immediately into dollars necessarily, um, I think we need to, in our society, just my opinion, expand number of ways to receive a higher education of some sort. It could be a trade school, it could be community college. Um, I think if more people start going to the community colleges, they'll actually get better and hopefully we'll get more investment and maybe that forces the, the universities to bring the, the price down a bit. But the bottom line is, responding to what you were saying, I do not think you would be where you are today if you hadn't had that, you know, ridiculous slate of diverse experiences at Wesleyan, because your book, and um, I just want to tease this part, because I want to finish talking about how you got to being a, a, a writer and speaker on the West Coast, uh, from a film major in college, there's a few little details in there. I just want to tease the fact that, you know, one of the reasons I wanted Smiley on is because he released a year ago? When does yep. the, the book come out? April 2014. All right, so in April 2014, he released a book that he had been working on for, I would say, many years, at least from a you know mental, intellectual standpoint. Um, I don't know when you actually started writing. I, I mean, I remember talking with you when that process was beginning, um, but you had a very clear vision of what you wanted to write about. And the book is called The Quarter Life Breakthrough. And we'll get to that, and I'll smiley explain it a bit more. But he's now found a profession um, which is uh, related to a whole number of different professions, from life coaches to motivational speaking to leadership training to mentoring, a lot of really important um, uh, contributions 
working with, with young people. And when I say young people, since I'm 33, Smiley's going on 32, we're talking about people, you know, millennials in their, you know, mid to late 20s, hence the quarter life breakthrough. Um, and we'll get to that. Um, but I, I just wanted to respond to the, the, you know, was it worth it in terms of Wesleyan? Because while you were there, I mean, even in the film program, you're talking about sociology, you're talking about psychology, you're talking about anthropology. Um, you know, I can argue that of all the arts programs at Wesleyan, as weird as this sounds, film is the best one to take if you're not planning to pursue it whatsoever, because it's so much about America and, you know, and obviously there was a lot of filmmaking aspects from a technical standpoint, but I remember the classes that you and our other friends were taking, Julia, Raquel, everybody, um, you know, where they were very kind of sociological classes. And maybe I'm misremembering that, but there were a few that you sort of got other things out of that you can apply to today, right? Totally. And I mean, you know, I, I think that, that that's that's spot on. I think, you know, I remember classes like, you know, the, the you know, combat film, which is really like a class in, you know, the history of American cinema. It talks about race. It talks about kind of how we portray, you know, the other and, and you know, World War Two and all of these different Vietnam and all of these things and how that relates to combat films today with Iraq, Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so you're really talking about politics and, you know, you know, the history of the United States. So I think a lot of the, the film major is designed around storytelling. And film really is, you know, if you think about what filmmaking is, kind of how you tell a story over space and time, right? It's the manipulation of time. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, the inclusion and omission uh, of certain details. That's what narrative is. And, you know, now that I'm doing a lot of writing, I, 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 a lot of those lessons uh, apply very much, if not more so, than they did when I was a location scout on, on a film set in New York City, um, freezing my ass off. I wasn't doing any writing or storytelling or, or filmmaking per se. I was working on a film set, and now I'm a writer. I actually think about those classes sometimes more, which is the, the great irony of, of career science and career development. So right. I do think that very much uh, you know, the liberal arts education matters, and, and, and Wesleyan, a place like Wesleyan matters well, and uh, I and I would 2015, but it's it's like you said, it's not for everyone, and there has to be some sort of we have to move to a place where it's it's either more affordable, or or you're getting more out of it because it's unfair to send someone that's 18 to 22 to one of these programs, spend two hundred thousand dollars, go into debt, emerge not knowing what they're doing, and without really any formal skills to get a job. Like, that's not okay. <laughs> right. You know, that's not that. And that's what's happening. So college hasn't caught up with the kind of the new economy. So there has to be for, for the majority of the population another way. Well, I would argue because of the um, just uh, all pervasive movie and television culture, um, which is getting harder to mock each year because especially on television all of the quality dramas and documentaries that you see on television but I would argue because of how all pervasive movies and TV shows are and the fact that people don't read as much as they used to that it's possible that you your writing was maybe better served by studying film than taking a creative writing class because that is the language of our culture and people ask me and you and I have talked about this because you've been on you know you've been listening to the Bizzlecast from day one and you've been one of my biggest supporters and I love you for that by the way buddy but um, 
you know, people who just sort of go in and out say, I don't get it. You're talking about Star Wars, The Matrix, and one fizzle cast, and then you're talking about, you know, existentialism, post-structuralism, and Taoism in the next fizzle cast. And, you know, my response is always, you know, well, one, I'm just interested in those things. You know, I love talking about great movies and great television shows. But I also think that, you know, because our culture is such a visual medium um, on all levels that, you know, that great movies and TV shows, I mean, Breaking Bad and Mad Men are doing for society what, you know, like freaking Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald were doing, you know, 70 years ago. I'm not going to say that it's, it's as deep or whatever, but in terms of, uh, of shaping people's experience. And, I, you know, I've talked in the past about how it's kind of sad, when, you know, when it comes to like these police beatings or whatever, that unless we have a video, we don't really take it seriously, right? Because we're just so used to getting all of our information visually at this point. And so... While I, you know, you probably weren't considering this at the time when you were the film program, I could argue that it was very beneficial to your writing. Um, I don't know what you think about that, or just you being so into movies. I mean, you're, I, my friend Joe oh. Wilson from high school was the one who got me really into movies in high school. But you were my friend in college who kept me watching, you know, awesome, cool movies because you just love them so much and got, and you actually got me into a love of filmmaking, which I talk about in a lot of my podcasts, how much I love the whole process of learning about filmmaking. Yeah. And I think, you know, a point that you made, which is important that, you know, may, may be lost on, oh, why is this podcast about one minute you're talking about Star Wars, one, one minute you're talking about politics and, and, and uh, you know, police brutality, and the next minute you're talking about Avatar, and the next minute you're talking about Taoism. Well, you know, one thing that you that any, any thinker and philosopher knows and writer or artist knows it's all of these things are connected, right? Right. You know, when someone is telling a story and, and putting, a, you know, images on screen, who did they cast? Why did they cast them? What are they saying? What is in the script? What is on screen? What, it, what is it? What are they, what are they talking about that's relevant to, um, you know, the times? What go deeper and, and you get the meaning, and so it's right. all connected. And that is something that I think, you know, we, we, you know, that's, I think, how we became friends, is kind of talking about, like, okay, you know, we could be laughing about, you know, uh, a Big Lebowski joke the one, in, one, in one moment, or a Coen Brothers film in one moment, and in the next moment you're talking about, you know, how that relates to Taoism, or how that relates to the meaning of life, or how right. that relates to what's going on in, in society, Right. And those things are all connected. So I, I definitely think what you're saying is 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 completely spot on. Is that you know you're really learning well, these lessons that you learn connect to everything that you're doing later on, right? You just don't necessarily see that at the time. Yeah, but I just want to jump back really quickly to Smiley being a film major, and yet you were somewhat dissatisfied um, in the major or, or I don't know if to satisfy to satisfy is the right word, but when you decided to pursue film right after college, when we were living together and I was pursuing music, I was a little surprised at first. Um, and I'm just wondering sort of what factored into your decision to try and make that leap into film work after college. And then of course, you know, how that came to an end or, or when you start to kind of question it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I definitely, I thought the major was, you know, the quality of the professors and the, and the, and the courses were amazing. 
I just felt that it was kind of a very traditional program that wasn't really kind of looking at, you know, the myriad of, you know, filmmaking, documentary, um, you know, forms out there. Right. And I, it was definitely much more classical and based in kind of traditional Hollywood uh, cinema, which is um, which is great. And that's still really relevant and important. I think a lot of people that pursue the program want that. Um, I was just kind of, you know, looking for something a little bit different. But the reason I, I think I went into film because I was like, oh, I was a film major. I have to work in film. Right, you know, I think right. that that was really the the kind of, oh, this is what I studied in college. And I think a lot of college graduates assume that, you know, OK, well, I just studied something intensely for um, the majority of college. That's what I'm supposed to do for my job. Mm -hmm. So I, I went to New York, um, you know, um, of course, uh, you, me, and Andreas looked for an apartment the first time we looked. And of course, Andreas and I, when the guy, uh, you know, the realtor was like, okay, so that'll be first month's rent, last month's rent, and security deposit. We looked at each other and said, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, we have to pay all that money. And I think, I think you, I think you turned to us and said, guys, how, 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 were, you, how were you expecting of paying for this? And, and I think Andreas and I were like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Not, you know, not, that was like, that was that, that moment of like, you're in the real world, man. Well, <laughs> let's know? not, let's not overlook the factor that in our first house hunting day, you missed like, you two <laughs> missed the first nine out of the 10 places that I ended up checking out by myself because, you know, we had a long night the previous night. But um, a little hungover, but yeah, yeah, that was a kind of rude, a rude awakening to uh, the life on the New York City streets. Right, um, right. But you know, so I think I went back to my parents' house for a couple months. Um, you know, saved up a little bit of money, or, or for six months probably, uh, saved up a little money, and then we finally got the place. Um, you know, towards the the beginning of what is that, two thousand six? No, I think it was November of '05. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah, and then I, I started to kind of, you know, you the the way the film industry works is you start on the bottom, you know. So I worked as a you know second camera assistant, helping load film, um, and then as a kind of a PA production assistant, where you're basically driving around a, a van around New York, picking up stuff, lugging stuff around the set. Um, and eventually kind of worked my way up to becoming a location scout, which is actually a pretty cool job. You get paid to go around New York or, or wherever you're shooting and take pictures of potential locations for a film. So it could be an apartment, it could be a rooftop, a bodega, a restaurant, an art gallery. Um, and then you show the photos to the cinematographer and the art director, the production designer, and they're kind of like, no, we need something a little bit larger or something that's more Art Deco or more modern or more Woody Allen or whatever it is that they're looking for. Right. Um, so it was a cool job because um, it was very visual. But I, I always felt out of place. I always was like, this really isn't me because, you know, you, you study film and you watch movies. And I loved, you know, I loved independent film and Richard Linklater and the Coen brothers and David Lynch and, you know, all this stuff. Or, or you know, I was a big fan of comedy and Woody Allen and... Larry David, Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy, uh, Dave Chappelle, the greats, right. and, and you love it. You think it's going to be like you're, you think you're going to be creatively kind of involved, right? You think like your words are going to, you're going to be hanging out with Dave Chappelle or you're going to be hanging out with, um, you know, the great directors or, or whatever and, and telling them what you, you know, your stories and you're, you're going to be writing, but you're actually like, you know, basically like getting coffee for people, right? you know, or, or, or waking up at four in the morning to like drive to Hoboken 
you know, to show up and like open, open the location and like make sure that the craft services truck gets there and the, that the makeup artist sets up the makeup, you know, that's what it was like for me. Like, if you remember, I, I don't think I ever, I, when I was on set, you know, I would work freelance the way most people in film do. Mm-hmm. When I was on a job, I didn't see you for seven, 10, 14, 20 days at a time. It was like, we were ghosts, ships in the night, you know? Yeah. And it was crazy. And I was like, you know, this isn't right. It, 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 it kind of felt sometimes like I worked on, I worked construction, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. I've never been someone to really work with my hands. Oh no, dude, I, you I, worked, you worked way harder than construction. <laughs> but, uh, in terms of hours, I mean, in hours, terms of hours, the like... hours were brutal. They were ridiculous. I'd go to work at, you know, seven, mm-hmm. eight PM and come home at six in the morning. It, it was ridiculous. Well, the only reason we um, ever and... crossed paths was just because I was such a late night owl at that point that either at the beginning of the day or the end of the day, we could maybe fit in a couple episodes of the office, but yeah, your schedule was pretty insane. Yeah. And so, you know, this is, uh, and I think that anyone that wants to work in film should work on sets and should get a sense of what it's really like because a movie takes, you know, like most people don't sit through the credits. To this day, I always sit through the credits, no matter what, whatever movie it is, whether I'm going to see a Hollywood film, a friend's film at a film festival, um, a new indie sensation, a film that was just at Sundance, whatever it was, I sit to the very end of the credits because that was me. I was one of those people, like the 187th name Right. That appears when you right. scroll the film. Right. Um, and I worked my ass off for like three or four months to mm-hmm. get that little credit. Right. So I always, you know, I always sit through the credits. But the point is, you need to work on those films to understand how a movie gets made and whether that industry is right for you. Everyone that wants to be in film, like, wants to be the writer director, they want to be Quentin Tarantino, they want to be Scorsese. And that's awesome. And I have a lot of, and we know people that are actually, you know, that we went to school with that are that are award-winning producers and are getting paid to work in film, uh, which is amazing and all power to them. But I think like you have to be able to love that film set, to, to want to work your way up, to, to really love that kind of those hours and that craziness because that's what the industry is like. I think all too often people have this romanticized notion that it's going to be like entourage or something. And, it's, and it couldn't be farther from that, for, especially for people that are starting from the bottom that don't right. have the family connections, whose right. parents you know, are not famous film directors uh, who don't have millions of dollars to just go make a film on their own. Um, so I, that was kind of a wake-up call for me. And then at one point I realized I was like, I actually hate this. And, I, and, and for me it was this notion that I, I realized that there were no people in the industry or there were no people I was, uh, that, I had, that, that were my colleagues right. um, that were mentors. There was no one that I was like, I want to be like that person. Because the producers and the production managers that I was around, like, kind of were miserable. They hated their lives. They either didn't have kids, or if they had families, they never saw their families. They chain smoked all the time. Um, it was just like heavy drinking and 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 drugs culture. And it was just it, it wasn't it wasn't what I I knew it wasn't the right fit for me. I had no idea what was the right fit at the time. I mean, this is when I was like 23, 24, 25. Um, but I knew that I was like, this isn't right. And I'm pretty sure that anything in this kind of, this world is not right for me, right? So uh, it was kind of, it was it was a jump for me to leave, you know, even though I love movies and to this day love watching a movie and love going to the theater to leave that that industry. But it was right, a great right. decision. Because but, but I, I, I'm just jumping real quick. I, but, you know, what's crazy about it, and I'm sure you still get this when you're talking to a friend or you know a girl or acquaintance or whatever and, and you're talking about your life and you tell them that you worked in film people think it's so cool because they only think of the cool parts 
and you know, obviously, I was running my own music company, so I, I wasn't. Um, you had a much rougher go of it because I could at least set my schedule a little bit, and I had a lot more control. I was working on much, much, much smaller projects than you, but I had you know full control over them. Um, but even that, you know, as you know, and I eventually left um, music after a few years, or at least working full time in music. And you know, I'll tell stories to people, uh, true stories about hanging out with Questlove in his Philly studio, videotaping Questlove while he was producing tracks for one of our artists. And you know, you tell people these stories, but it's just hard to convey, you know, the, all the other you know crap that goes on. You mentioned drugs and just people with unhealthy lifestyles. Um, I certainly saw a lot of that. Obviously, me having worked in sort of you know world music or international music was a pretty chill scene overall, as compared to like the indie rock scene, for example. And uh, without revealing too much, I think both of us know multiple people who are involved in the indie rock scene, and I've heard some stories about what goes on there. Um, but I don't know if you had that experience. I mean, you tell someone that you worked on I Am Legend. I mean, that was a cool movie. People probably are like, oh, that rocks. And you're like, yeah, well, I was actually miserable. I wasn't making very much money, and I was getting no sleep or whatever. Oh, yeah, that was, like, one of the worst experiences of my life. They Like, I would, like, I, for, for, I worked as a location scout on I Am Legend. My job, or, like, a second or third location scout, I was so, that movie probably employed, like, half the city of New York. Right. Um, but uh, my job was to take a photo um, it was like you know, they film uh, uh, Will Smith's character lives in like a bungalow in Washington Square Park or it's an apartment right on Washington Square Park. So my job was to take a photo every 10 minutes of the of the apartment that they were going to shoot in to get like because this the DP, the cinematographer wanted to mm -hmm. see what the light looked like throughout the day. And so I literally just sat there with like a digital camera on a chair um, in Washington Square Park for like 24 hours, taking a photo every 10 minutes, freezing my ass off. Hey, I had to like pay a cab driver so that I could like go to the bathroom so he could watch my stuff. And it was just like, I was like, what am I doing? Like, this isn't filmmaking. This isn't storytelling. And this isn't say like, no matter what career you pick, and you know this in music, film, art, writing, entrepreneurship, uh, business, you're going to do some stuff you don't want to do. Like everyone does stuff they don't want to do. Even right. successful people do stuff they don't want to do every day, whatever it is. Right. But I, I just kind of realized, I looked at the people that were 5, 10, 15, 20 years older than me that had been in the game that long, and they were doing fairly similar stuff. Very few had broken through that next level. Um, I just was like, this isn't for me. This is way too right. much of a construction set for someone. I'm way more of a people person. I'm way too creative. I, I also want to create social change and, and really impact people's lives. And I was working on toothpaste commercials right. and you know, a movie like I Am Legend, which is a cool movie, but then the projects would be kind of random. I'd get a call from a producer that would say, do you want to work on this? And I wouldn't even know what it was. It could be a comedy, it could be a Hollywood movie, it could be a commercial. Frankly, the commercials pay like three or times as much, as much. so you, you take that gig anyway because it pays better than the independent film and the work is the exact same. So, you know, I got to the point where I was like, I, I don't, I don't want to do this. And it was also kind of the time when I was like, I need to leave New York just because I wasn't, I, I didn't think I was living that healthy there. I, I, I love living with you and Dre and we had a great time, but we all kind of recognized that, you know, we were, we weren't optimizing, speaking of reaching our full potential, we weren't optimizing our potential in terms of our quality of life. I don't think any of us would say that we were in New York. The well, city, I think, almost uh, destroyed all of us. Yeah, yeah.
well, maybe not quite so dramatic, but certainly we, we all, um, there was fallout for each of us for different reasons and some same reasons. Um, but, um, just sort of bridge to talking about what, what a job is versus what a career is or, or just a passion. Um, it made me think about, you talked about sitting in, um, the park and I am legend. Was it Wash Park or was it uh, Washington or, Square Park? It was Washington yeah. Square Park and you're measuring the lighting and actually in, my most recent Bizzlecast, 5.5, which was my actual review of Avengers Age of Ultron, which I loved, you know, I praised the, the actors and the great action and Joss Whedon, the writer-director, but I also talked a lot about how the little stuff was done so well. And it's funny you mentioned lighting, because I went into some detail talking about how, um, you know what pickups are, right, or reshoots um, in sure. a film. And part of the reason you need to get the, the lighting um, uh, captured um, both, you know, kind of literally, but also from like sort of a physics standpoint in terms of measuring the, the quality and intensity of lighting is in case something doesn't work out on the location and you have to reshoot it later in a studio. And the only way to make it look good other than having the set good, even more important is the lighting, I find. And I, I praised Age of Ultron for being basically, you know, like there was really not a single moment in that movie where it looked like a reshoot or a pickup or anything, even though I knew that there was studio stuff happening because the lighting was so consistent in whatever location they were. My point being, what you were doing was incredibly important, but that doesn't mean it's going to give you great satisfaction, right? Yeah. Oh, those, those people, like that's what I mentioned with the credits, those people make the movie. You know, yep. the director is the one that's in Variety or, or you know, in the New York Times and, and, the, and the famous actors. Those are the people you hear about. But those people, the, the, the gaffers and the, and the rigging team and, and the electricians, they're, they're the people that make the movie, man. You know, you never hear their names. I don't, I don't even think people that work in film, well, maybe people that are producers can name you gaffers, you know, the people that do lighting and key grips and people that are electricians and people that run the cables and, and move the lights. And on a movie like Age of Ultron, you've got people, you know, that's a hundred person team, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, especially if they're doing crazy, uh, you know, action sequences, those people make the movie, they get, you know, they get very little credit. I mean, and, 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 and they get, you know, but a lot of those people, they love their work. You know, they're artists. They really are artists. Um, but, you know, you have to love that. And I was like, I realized that it was like, I was kind of fake loving it. I was loving it for the sense that it was cool to like put on my IMDB profile. People thought it was cool at, ha you know, when I go to a bar and tell, uh, was, was hitting on a girl and tell them I worked in film and, oh yeah, I just worked on I Am Legend or I'm just, I'm working on this movie that's at Sundance. I'm going to Sundance. They thought it was so cool. I realized that like deep down, I didn't think it was cool. Right. And, and this is the lesson that kind of actually quite a mu very much applies to you know, stuff I talk about in my book and we can get to it later, but it's like, you have to love what you're doing. Right. You have to find meaning in it. Not your parents, not your boss, not the girl or guy you think is cute at the bar, um, not your alumni page or your Facebook page, right. you know, because everyone's always going to think it's cool. I know a ton of people that work at Google that hate their job. Right. Yep. I also know a ton of people that work at Google that think they're the greatest thing in the world and think Google's the greatest thing in the world. Awesome. The point is, it doesn't matter. Yep. You know, the point is, what do you what do you think? Right. Mm -hmm. I know. I mean, you know this from working in music, like the grass is always greener. You know, yeah, like some days working with Questlove is awesome. But some days, you know, you felt like, you know, music was something that 
you know, you, you couldn't go to a show anymore and enjoy the music exactly. because it had turned into a business. And, you know, chore. you were networking and a chore and you got to meet the promoter and you got to meet the manager mm -hmm. and it, 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 it makes it not fun. And I, I'm sure there are people that feel that way that work in film. I know there are people that work, feel that way that work in music. And, you know, I, I in my space now with writing and, and speaking and coaching, um, in the kind of personal development space, there are a lot of people that I'm like, that, that, that don't really like it, even though, you know, you would think that they were killing it from the, the look of things on social media. Mm -hmm. So you have to have that true, you have to have that true um, fulfillment yourself. And, and it changes and, it, and you have to kind of be consciously aware of that yourself. Yeah. And so, because um, I do want to bridge to your current work, but there's one last piece of the puzzle here. And, uh, you know, I'll save people the full narrative, but essentially for various reasons and at various times, Smiley and I decided that we had had enough of both our professions and sort of living in New York and everything that New York represented. And, uh, you know, at some point, it may not be in this podcast, we're definitely going to do a talk about New York City and, all, you know, uh, sort of an in-depth analysis of it, both from our time living there and now being away, but visiting it and still having lots of friends there. So you left, but there was a few years between when you left and when you ended in San Francisco. And so I'm curious um, if you just can sort of, you know, give us a little tale um, that bring in all that together, but also how that next experience really helped sort of, I guess, um, uh, make yourself want to challenge yourself even further to the point to what you're able to do now and what you're doing with your own work. So yeah, so I, you know, so I was living in our, I left New York, uh, I wanted to get away, I wanted to get away from the city, I wanted to travel, so I moved to, to Buenos Aires, Argentina for a little while, uh, had a great time, did some traveling, worked for a film festival there, it was kind of a time of just trying to find myself and figure things out, and it was right around the time that uh, the Obama um, campaign was heating up, and Obama and, and Hillary Clinton were going against each other, which is interesting if you think about it right now, right, right. current context. Um, so that was 2008, uh, around the, around the primaries. Um, and it was really interesting because, you know, like friends were divided and, and most of our friends, I think were, were Obama people through and through from pretty much the get go. But there were definitely like people I had, you know, other friends that were all about Hillary and, and electing the first woman as a president. Um, and it was kind of an interesting divide in, among the left and, and the democratic party. Um, and then, so I kind of was in Argentina, eating a lot of steak, drinking red wine, going out a lot, and, <laughs> and having fun. And that then sounds horrible, like, man. That sounds fucking horrible. Yeah, being like, what am I? What am I doing? You know, kind of like, what am I contributing to? Uh, you know, I'm having fun. I'm I'm kind of just going, doing nothing though. Really, I, I'm not. I'm contributing nothing to society. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to borrow, to borrow, uh, borrow a line from Seinfeld, but. Uh, <laughs> but, but I know so we I both wedge will stop right now. Both of us are thinking of that entire scene, which we could do by heart if we wanted to. <laughs> That's why we're stopped. We're look like, at oh, you. Oh, look at you. Look at you. You can give you nothing to society. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Please, please. But you yeah. know, so so it really, um, I, I kind of reached out to a bunch of friends. We had uh, uh, quite a few friends from from Wesleyan that were working on the campaign. Um, so I, I sent some emails and reached out to him. I actually reached out to Alex Okrent, um, who, who you know and, and who, who sadly passed away a couple years ago. Uh, and he was the one that actually got me the job on the Obama campaign. He was the one that got me the job 
Um, he, he was working in Chicago for a while for Obama. I think he started working for Obama at Wesleyan. Yes, yes. And, he um, was working for Obama before anyone he, knew who Barack Obama was and before yeah. Obama was cool, before the big speech, before yep. Obama was a household name, um, which is just Alex was a really special person. Yeah, Alex, and we, we dearly missed him. It was such a great guy. Um, and was one of those guys that was brilliant, but went out of his way to never rub it in your face how brilliant he was, you know? So brilliant and such a, com like, so committed to, to social justice, to social change, to just, to making, to making the world a better place and just to helping people without kind of, as you say, uh, telling everyone about it or, or rubbing it in, um, which I think is, is so unique, uh, um, among, uh, among among talented people, so yeah, he he got me the job. Um, I, I worked as a field organizer in Indiana. I was like, I'll go anywhere, and and um, they put me in. And he, I think I got an email. He said forwarded an email. He said great, and he's like, I'm going to connect you with someone. And I get an email from someone that's like, Can you be in Indianapolis on you know August 12th or something? I was like, Sure. So I basically flew flew from Buenos Aires, maybe stopped in in Boston to see my folks, and then went to Indianapolis. Um, for the remainder of the, the general election campaign. So I was in Anderson, Indiana, which is um, kind of 45 minutes uh, northeast, I believe, of, of Indianapolis. Small town, a lot of cornfields, a lot of evangelical churches. Mm -hmm. I was probably the only Jewish person for miles. Um, you know, I'd go door to door for people being like, you know, are you uh are you interested in, do you, do you know about the Barack Obama campaign or like, you know, who are you planning on voting for? And I'd have multiple people be like, you know, I'd never vote for that. You know, insert, mm -hmm. uh, insert awful word, mm -hmm. uh, get off my porch before I shoot you. I'd be wearing an Obama shirt and they, yeah. I'd, I'd have some people be like, I'm going to get my shotgun before I even get up their porch, you know? And I'd be like, you know, I was, I was a little scared at times. So, and I, well, uh, just, just really quickly, I didn't do nearly what you did, but during the primary against Hillary, I did do, I don't know, a few days or a week of campaigning for Obama before the primary in Pennsylvania where Hillary ended up crushing him in Pennsylvania for a number of reasons. But um, they actually sent me only to Democrats. And I'm sure you were saying uh, you were mostly working with Democrats, obviously, at that point. And it's amazing. You think, oh, Democrats are so progressive and this and that. And I heard the same things as you. And I was working in suburban Philly. And there's a lot yeah. of working class in suburban, in parts of suburban Philly, but it's not the middle of Indiana. And I can tell you, I heard that stuff a lot. Yeah. Um, and so it just goes to show you how far we have left to go. But anyway, yeah, go yeah. on. Our country, our country has a lot of issues, as, as we see every day, um, even now. And, uh, and yeah. But um, so, you know, so uh, going around, you know, and, and kind of getting people to vote for Obama. And it, and it was it was it was intense because I'd always had always lived in these liberal bubbles my whole life. Right. Cambridge, Wesleyan, Brooklyn, you know, most people pretty much that we hung out with that I associated with, you know, would be pro Obama, would be, you know, all these things. And then to go to a place like Indiana where like, you know, you kind of feel like an outcast was was quite interesting. Um, but the cool thing was we actually uh, won the county, Madison County, where An Anderson was that I was uh, in charge of with another field organizer. It was the only county on the eastern half of the state that went for Obama. Yep. And Indiana went blue, which was crazy. Yep. It was the first time Indiana had gone for a Democrat since Lyndon Johnson in 1964, wow. which is insane. And it probably won't go blue again for God knows how long because it's all, all of the major offices are back to Republican, which is a damn shame. Um, 
So, you know, it was a pretty special moment. And I, I mean, I think it's hard for even the, the most cynical of us to remember the, that time. I mean, it's what, right. seven years ago at this point, but to remember election night, I don't care how left you are. I don't care how much of a radical you are. Even if you knew that Obama couldn't really change things, even if you knew he's like not going to change the prison system and, and not necessarily going to stop all wars and, and not going to make the world a, you know, a change uh, income inequality in the United States. It was pretty hard for any progressive person to not on election night in 2008 be pretty to, to, shed, to shed a tear or to be pretty, oh, my God, like this just happened. Right. Right. Like, right. I, I don't think, you know, I know a lot of critics of Obama, even, you know, uh, like someone like Cornell West, who, who, you know, who's a ardent critical of Obama now. But he he campaigned for Obama and was like. I, I saw him at, you know, like uh, I remember seeing him at like the staff ball or like one of these ball uh, election balls back in November, uh, back in 2008. It was a pretty special moment for, for Americans, for American history, for the world to see this man get elected president. Um, so, yeah, so that was a great moment. And I kind of was was pretty, pretty, you know, idealistic, uh, idealistic, optimistic, excited about the campaign, excited about like the possibility of bringing about change in Washington and, and change in the country. So like many people that work on campaigns, I was like, oh, I'm going to go to DC. I'll go to DC and I'll work for the administration and this will be awesome. And, and, um, and I, look, I, I, we can do a politics podcast at some point. We won't do this here, but needless to say, you and I agree on a lot of issues. We disagree on some issues. I, tend to be a bigger Obama supporter still today than most of our friends, I would say, um, for various reasons. But you have to admit, that was, at the time, the best thing that could have happened to our country, regardless of what happened since. Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, I was working on the campaign. I mean, even I, you know, at the time, I I wasn't, you know, I was working on the campaign and I didn't, you know, think Obama was going to change everything. I didn't agree with all of his policies. You know, know, I, I I definitely generally tend to, like, ear towards the left of things. But, um, you know, at the time, I think it was there was a lot of momentum and a lot of possibility. And, you know, maybe some of it was optics or, or what have you. But at that time, I think, you know, there was a there was a lot of energy. And it's hard sure. to look back now and be a little bit, at least for me, a little bit upset, because I think we, we maybe as a country squandered a little bit of an opportunity. But there are a lot of things and I don't blame Obama. I don't even necessarily blame his administration as much as the general political climate and how tied to money uh, our political system is, which I think is the single biggest issue we have, is that it's impossible for politicians. We don't have to necessarily get into this, but no, no, no. The, the governing happens with, with direct correlation with 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 money and corporations right. and who has the most money, and it's all tied together. Well, and, and the real the real problem is, regardless of who's president, a lot of this stuff's happening in the Supreme Court, which Obama can't do shit about. But, and um, Citizens United, I think, was a huge, a huge blow for this country. That's that's yep. that's felt every day. Mm-hmm. So, but needless to say, the, the long and short of it is, I moved to to Washington, um, eager to get you know involved in the campaign, and I had some contacts from other states that were kind of you know, the, you know, trying to get involved, and basically um, kind of met the right people and and um, started. Uh, you know, eventually, I mean, it took over a year actually to get the position, which is quite interesting. I, uh, it was an interesting time for me because I was kind of trying to get this job in Washington. It didn't get it. I was like, maybe I shouldn't do this, but really wanted to. 
So finally, let's yada, 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 after working at a restaurant for a while in D.C., working for a charter school for a little bit, helping out, uh, get a job working at the Peace Corps, uh, which is a great organization that sends American, uh, Americans abroad to volunteer in the developing world for two years. Um, so I got a job working for a senior official there. So my boss was uh, uh, one of the top people there, a number three person at the agency, um, kind of doing a lot of special projects, um, administrative stuff, scheduling stuff, writing, communications, really like the jack of all trades. My title was you know, special assistant to the director of global operations. So I had a lot of access. I'd be in senior staff meetings. I'd got to, I'd get to go to the White House. I'd get to travel even. Um, and I know it sounds like, oh, like, oh, I'm so sorry you were upset because it sounds like what a cush job. But again, it's one of these situations where, you know, grass is always greener. Uh, it sounds great on paper, but, you know, I wasn't that happy. And again, I knew it wasn't the right place for me um, because I just kind of the way politics works is it's you uh, you kind of just have to keep keep working working for people until you get to a point where you're, you know, senior enough that they're working for you. And I just didn't really want to want to do that slug. Well, and this is, um, I think then this is a great way to kind of segue here because what I sort of learned through your experience, because we talked a lot while you were in DC and I don't want to rewrite history here, but <laughs> for, for better or worse, I think I kind of, tried to convince you to stay longer, at least in the beginning. Um, uh, but eventually it became clear that you were just so unhappy. And I think what's interesting about the Peace Corps, if we talk about a scientific experiment, is that, yes, it's part of the government, but it's not a particularly political part of the government. It's more part of the bureaucracy than the politics, right? So even though it was started by JFK and people who... who are involved in the Peace Corps tend to be liberal. It's not like you were working for the Department of Defense or the State Department or something like that. And so, you, you know, and so while there were things politically coming out um, of the Peace Corps that maybe you didn't love, it's not like it was in your face and it became clear to, to you, I think, or at least it became clear to me through listening to you that your dissatisfaction really had to do with kind of the quality and the type of the work as opposed to the organization itself. Or oh, I- to- oh, totally. Like, yeah, I think I still to this day think Peace Corps does great work and I have great colleagues there and, and I really respect the people that work there in the past and currently. It was more just like day to day, you know, I would be editing talking points or writing a memo or, you know, preparing a briefing book. <laughs> Or whatever, and it's like yes, yes, Jan, I do read the memos. Yeah, I read all the memos. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mean uh, the one? You mean the one you told me to throw away? <laughs> um, but like you know, and I was just like, I'm better than I'm better than this. Like I have I have talents and skills. You know, I may not know exactly what they are, but that I know I can do better than this, right? And it's not, and, and this is the type of thing, it's like, it's not like my work wasn't valued. I tell people would all the time tell me I'm doing a great job. My boss would tell me I mean, I was doing a great job. Um, my friends, and, and I think you're right, and this is, it's, it's interesting looking back in retrospect now at this, but I think a lot of friends of mine, close friends, um, would say, you have an awesome job, stick with it, you know? I'm right. so glad I didn't listen to their advice. Well, that was me, so I'm glad you didn't listen <laughs> no, it, to my advice. No, and it's advice. not just you. You're not the only one. There were mo- many friends from a variety of different parts of my life, whether it was Wesleyan, uh, friends in D.C., 
friends at Peace Corps, friends from, you know, people just right. people doing other things. Although, man, that, although, that although. Said, you have a great job that's lever. I remember, you know, one of my buddies who had just graduated from SICE, which is like one of the top uh, grad schools for foreign policy or foreign right. um, masters in public policy. Uh, he was like, dude, I know people that can't get a job at Peace Corps that just finished grad school at like the top grad school in the country. Right. Uh, so he, and I remember he's, his, his whole thing was slow your roll. Like, right. you got a good, like, hold off, you know? And I remember having this conversation with him as I was considering leaving my job, right. uh, quitting, leaving D.C., moving to San Francisco, or staying and, and considering like this potential uh, promotion and right. staying in D.C. I'd still be there to this day, right. and Although, I don't think I'd be happy. So, I mean, I, I would have made the best of it, but like... Well, hold I'm on, hold on, hold on. Let me just interject. Let me just interject here, because, you know, we're best buddies. So I want people to just get a little bit of a sense of our relationship, how honest we are with each other. And I said I was one of the ones keeping or, or trying to convince you to stay. But probably six to eight months before you ended up leaving, when it was clear how unhappy you were, I, I flipped the completely the other way. Um, and sure. I, I was actually at that point telling you to quit sooner rather than later. And, and then you had trouble quitting because you're a professional and you didn't, you know, I mean, not like you loved everyone you worked with, but it was a good, decent work environment. It was a good job, as people pointed out, as you pointed out benefits and salary whatever and you know great for you there's a million reasons to stay um but eventually it was just it, so clear um you know to me that uh, how unhappy you were in that um and yet i, I have to imagine that tendering your resignation um was uh, still i gotta, ten I gotta <laughs> tender my resignation <laughs> um, it must have still been very difficult even though you were already there <laughs> oh up here, I'm already there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, it was the hardest thing I, I it was the hardest thing I had to do because I knew I was. I mean, I remember this conversation with my boss, where my boss basically rejected my resignation. <laughs> she was like, "So you're going to go to grad school?" And I was like, "She's like, you're going to go to business school?" I was like, "Nope." She's like, "So you have a job?" And I was like, "Nope." She's like, "So you're just moving to San Francisco?" And I was like, "Yep." She's like, "I don't think so." <laughs> Which, like. To her credit, is probably what I would say if I had if I was in that position, and my employees said, you know, she 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 was saying this the exact smart thing that any um, professional should say to their well, right, uh, and, well, and to, the, well, to, to, to someone that the, to their employee, but like, but we you know, should just I, add really quickly in here though that she really, really, really liked you and wanted you to stay. Oh right? yeah, and my boss is great, and she did she 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 gave me so much room to shine there, and she was she was very loyal and very supportive, but it, it was like, it was beyond that. I, I, I just knew that if I stayed, it, I was going down a path that, that was going to be, I was going to be compromised, you know? Right. Um, and it takes a lot for like, you know, it takes a lot for a, a boss or a colleague to say, yeah, you should leave this place or our um, you know, I regret not leaving or, you know, you do what's best for you because I think we always give advice of that's what we've done. We give advice of, to people that, that reflects our own lives, right? It's very hard to give the advice that's kind of like, well, I did this, you shouldn't do what I do. Well, and I would right? add, I would add that there's a psychological component in that exact thing of rationalizing and justifying, justifying your own decisions. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you've experienced this, but, you know, all of a sudden all of our friends are married and having kids, especially when they start having kids, 
they start getting on other people about having kids. Sure. Um, all my cousins have a million kids. My sister and her husband, Jordan, who will have a family at some point, but they're not in any rush. You know, my family's constantly getting on him about having kids. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that, that those people regret having kids, but it's certainly, you know, no, no one likes the cool kid that does what everyone else isn't doing, basically, right? I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to. Um, but it's also the grass is greener thing, you know, where yeah, when people find like, out I'm single who are married, they're like, oh man, I wish I was single. I'm like, no, you don't, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you do not wish you were single, um, whatsoever. I mean, for the few nights a week where I have total freedom, it's just not worth the yeah. lack of emotional connection. And so I, I just wanted to point out, I think that's a wider kind of psychological response that humans have in terms of justifying their own decisions. Yeah, I mean, nothing Nothing gets me more upset, um, I, you know, um, when someone that's in a long-term relationship or married or engaged is like, oh, oh I wish I was on online dating. Oh, Hinge seems so cool or Tinder seems co- cool. It's like, give me a break. Like, no, you don't. Like, you're di- you know, like, you suck. <laughs> well, the problem <laughs> you know, is those people are actually screwing us or whatever, screwing people who are on online dating because – People do sign up just to check it out, even when they're married or together with someone. <laughs> I might, I've, I have friends in the city who are in long-term relationships or marriage who love to fuck around online. Um, and so, yeah, and so everyone wants to have a taste of what they can't have. And I think that's an Aver- a very American thing. But anyways, moving on. So, yeah. So basically, you know, it was, it was tough for me because, you know, when, to, to, to leave a sure thing, which, which was – DC for me was a sure thing. Like I could have – bought a house in a few years if I had stayed at my job. Um, I would have had, you know, very, very clearly a, a, a job and kind of career path that was pretty safe um, for, for forever, for at least 5, 10, 15 years, you know, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, and, and during the recession, which that, you know, that was around, around the, the end of the recession, but still like a time where the market was, the job market was quite volatile, mm-hmm. you know, to, to leave and not know what I was doing next is a crazy thing and probably very illogical, but, um, you know, sometimes you just got to do that kind of thing. Um, and, and as you can hear I, I, from hearing my story, you, you kind of get the sense that I'm someone that uh, doesn't like to settle and is kind of, kind of a journeyman, if you will. Uh, that's just how I live my life. Um, and I'm okay with that. I'm never going to be someone that probably does the same thing for a long period of time. Sure. Um, maybe that's to my own detriment, but you know, I, I, I decided I wanted to, to move to San Francisco. I had always kind of wanted to live in California and I was just kind of curious about the freedom and the the weather and the kind of culture out here, um, which I think definitely is much more supportive than East Coast is very kind of traditional career paths. Right. What's your What's your vocation? Where did you go to grad school? What are you doing now? Um, you know, you go to a bar and the second you walk in, someone or you meet someone, and they're like, "What do you do? What do you do?" Um, and I just kind of wanted to get away from that because in DC, that's all everyone ever talked about was what do you do? Who do you work for? Right. And I was just kind of like, let get me out of here. Right. So, um, so just to just to reestablish the timeline here really quickly. So, when did you decide to move to San Francisco? A. B. When did you move to San Francisco? And C. Did the idea for the book come before, during, or after those things? Yeah. So I think I decided to move to San Francisco in uh, February, March, twenty twelve. Um, I didn't. 
and it's, uh, it was kind of like I went to this program called Starting Block, which is a social innovation fellowship where I kind of met a lot of young people that were starting companies and, mm. and kind of going after going mm. after their dreams. And that was kind of like the impetus to be like, all right, I need to finally do this. Um, I didn't actually get out here till August of 2012. Um, and then the answer with the book is no, the book came about a year later. I had no idea I was going to do the book. Um, that wasn't like part of the plan. You know, I had no plan to move across the country, write a book and become a writer or speaker. Like I just was like, I'm going to change my life up a little bit here. Right. Uh, and move to San Francisco and see what happens. And I knew I wanted to start writing. So writing was definitely an intention. And I, and I kind of started a blog right around the time that I was going through this transition to kind of talk about what is it like to quit a job? What is it like to not know what you're doing at the age of 28? Right. What is it like to kind of you know, have all these people telling you to do different things and just, Hey, I want to try putting my writing out there because right, right. I love to write. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, people always told me I'm a good writer, but I've never really kind of tried. I've never really put myself out there. And I think you find this, I'm, I'm sure you find this with a lot of musicians, you know, it's scary to put your work out there. It's scary to start a podcast. It's scary to do a show. It's scary to call yourself a musician or call yourself a writer or call yourself a filmmaker because we kind of traditionally hold those titles for, you know, people we think that are famous right. or in the New York Times or, you know, whatever. But, you know, you have to start somewhere. Like, that is really, like, a big lesson of, that I learned is that there's no day when you suddenly become a writer. You know, there's no day when you're suddenly someone grants you, like, the sword of, you know, you are now a warrior or, like, you know... You are, you are officially there. It's like you just do it. The second you start doing it is when you're doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was just a big thing was just to start. And, you know, I think the blog kind of just like helped me get my, helped me practice my voice and kind of get my story out there and start to build an audience, however small. And not know. just, and not just build an audience, but find out that there are maybe more people out there that were into what you were into than maybe you expected, right? Yeah, a lot of people going through this, you know. Um, I, I mean, and, and they kind of just realized like, oh, there's like a community of people out there that are going through the same exact thing I was, right? That are working jobs at organizations that are reputable, that are great on paper, that are making good money, that are at Google or Peace Corps or the White House or, you know, uh, a huge company or corporation, um, that everyone's heard of, and they don't want to be there anymore, and they want to do something different, you know. And they may be like outcasts by from their parents and their friends, and everyone thinks they're nuts. But you know, there are other people out there going through this. Like they're they need a resource, and they, you know, they need someone to talk to about this stuff. So I kind of just realized, okay, like there's definitely a need for this, and you know, I kind of started surrounding myself with people in San Francisco that were in these types of circles. Mm -hmm. And that's when a couple of friends were like, you should write a book. And I was kind of like, yeah, whatever, you know, no way. Right. Um, and they were like, no, seriously, you should write a book. And I was like, well, maybe I should write a book. So I, I committed to it um, probably in 2013, the spring of 2013. It was actually, I think, right before you guys visited. Remember when you and Andreas visited? Of course. We have that classic picture. Yeah, that was right around the time when I was like, I'm going to do this book. That's when I kind of committed to it. Um, and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to launch a campaign, a crowdfunding campaign so that I could raise money for the book before my 30th birthday. That was kind of the promise I made to myself. Mm -hmm. So I launched it literally on my 30th birthday or June, June 29th or June or the day after. Um, because, 
you know, the way the book pub- the book publishing industry works is that it's quite hard to get a book deal, right? Oh, so yeah. it's very hard. It's, you know, it's like getting your movie greenlit or getting a studio to back your film. Or how about uh, releasing an album? Or releasing an album. <laughs> it's really hard because you, you know, like you basically have to go to these publishers that are giving you an investment and they're like, why am I going to take a risk on you? Like you don't have, you know, like you're not famous. You don't have a huge following. You haven't been featured in the New York Times a dozen times, all of these things. So, you know what, I, I just kind of was like, you know what, I'm going to do it on my, do it by myself, which I think is kind of the way to do it now as an artist or musician is you kind of just, you know, like Amanda Palmer style, you, you, or, or even the way Radiohead's doing it now where you kind of make your art, make your work and put it up there and, you know, and see who's interested. So crowdfunding, I think is a great tool now for people, uh, to build a community and build an audience that around, around the body of work. Well, so the, I kinda just, the problem with the Radiohead example, because I've used this example a lot, but I've also heard other people used it is that you know, they were superstars for like 20 years before that's they true. started that's, doing this. That's true. And I think that some people think that they confuse the results with the process, if you know what I'm saying. That, well, you know, I talk with the logically A, then B, being misconstrued as B, then A, meaning, well, Radiohead can do it, so all I have to do is do the same thing they did, <laughs> and I'll have the same results, which is actually the backwards way of looking at it. Um, right. And certainly lots of people are getting crowdfunded things funded and you actually had a very specific reason why your initial attempt was uh, stifled which had nothing to do with you but I don't know if you want to talk about that part of the um, process in terms of how you ended up on Indiegogo. Yeah so I mean that's I think that's a great point that's true. Um, Radiohead the reason they're able to do that is because they're Radiohead but I think that the, that the point being that the way you have to like go out there and make it happen yourself right? Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's, and that's what I did with, with crowdfunding because I kind of realized I was like, I'm not going to get a book deal, right? So what do I do? Well, I'm going to make it happen. So I tried to do a Kickstarter campaign and Kickstarter rejected me, um, not because of my campaign itself, but because they were no longer doing any projects related to self-help because some asshole dude had, had kind of come up with this book that was like a, how to sleep with women like how to get women to sleep with you type of book and was really offensive and, and, and all of these uh, women's groups and feminist groups and people in general were just like, you're an awful person. Kickstarter, how can you support this? Kickstarter didn't take it down from their site because they legally couldn't. They had no kind of like um, way of, of saying it was inappropriate from a legal standpoint. Right. So they basically just said, well, okay, we're not doing any self-help projects anymore. Even though my book was like, how do you figure out what you want to do with your life? And how do you build a meaningful career is like a, actually a very positive form of advice. Sure. But they just kind of said no advice. So I was like really bummed about it because I love Kickstarter. But then I was like, okay, that's cool. I'm going to do Indiegogo. So I put my campaign on Indiegogo still within like right around my 30th birthday. It like fell in with like 24 hours, which was my goal. Um, and then, you know, did the campaign and it raised um, almost $13,000 in, in a month from, from 500 people in 38 countries, which was wow. pretty amazing. Yeah. And so like, you know, sure, some of those people were friends from college or people I knew from high school or, you know, someone I'd worked on a film with or just mm-hmm. random friends, you know, that are like, oh, these guys make doing a, uh, writing a book, like I'm going to support it. But like I'd see the names coming through on, on PayPal or whatever. And most of the names were people I'd never met before, right? right. People I, you know, complete strangers. And I was like, that's when I was like, oh my God, like this could be a thing, you know? 
because people that are you have no idea who they are, are giving you money. They're giving you money. Like so people from, you know, all of these different countries that I didn't even know start giving you money and you're like, "Oh, wow, like this I may have something here, right?" Uh, this is pretty empowering because I hadn't, hadn't written the book yet. This was just an idea. When I did the campaign, it was like I had the video trailer and an idea and maybe a rough, barely even an outline, but just kind of an, an idea. And that's really kind of shows you the power now of, of social media, I think, uh, of really kind of getting your idea out there. So that was pretty awesome. And then I actually sat down and wrote the book, um, which is very hard to do. The first draft was a disaster. I shared it with my editor and she was like, this is complete crap. She actually thought it was really depressing. And she was like, you know, I think I thought you were writing a book that was supposed to be inspiring and uplifting. And this is like pretty, pretty sad stuff. You know, it's like it was it was really like kind of like the world is messed up because of this and mediocrity is this and society wants you to do this and that. And it was kind right. of like, oh, we kind of my editor was like, you know, we know what the problem is. What's the solution? You know? And that's what I try to really make the book, the quarter life breakthrough, kind of more about this this moment of opportunity and what are the possibilities and how do you actually go about finding kind of work that you care about and building a life around something you care about. Sure. Um, and, you know, we could talk about the book for a long time um, and there's a lot of ways we can tackle the book. Um, but, you know, because it is a Bizzlecast, I thought one way to sort of broach it would be, and you've heard this, um, when I, I actually talk about your book during um, what, I, what I thought was one of the sort of the better, more crucial sections of the Taoism podcast. Uh, it was at Bizzlecast 4, um, where I talk My favorite, about, my favorite Bizzlecast. Yeah, mine too. Um, and um, I talk about how in Taoism and some other sort of Eastern philosophies, it's more bottom up in terms of coming from the people, spiritually and religiously, as opposed to Western religions, which are way more top-down with hierarchies and stuff, but that our society is also structured this way. And I talked about the difference between top-down activism and bottom-up activism, and how bottom-up activism, which really a lot of our friends are involved with or have been involved with in some way or another um, throughout the years, um, and is... is I think it's sort of implicit to your book. I don't know if you use that term, but um, what I really identified with knowing you well is that, you know, you went to a really good college, which is a top-down institution. You worked in the film industry, which is a top-down institution. And then you worked in politics, which is very much a top-down institution. And now you are both approaching your life and career from a bottom-up way and highlighting and working with other people who are also approaching their lives and careers from a bottom-up way. Am I way off on this one? No, you're spot on. I mean, that's that's totally true. I mean, that's even the philosophy that I kind of talk about in terms of, you know, kind of going around against the career ladder mindset, which I think is just generally the American or Western education mindset, which is you kind of, you know, take AP classes, go to a good college, get a good job, move up the ladder, kind of rise up the corporate ladder, get a better title, better salary, all of these things, somehow have a white picket fence and live happily ever after, is just complete crap. And, and research so, shows that, right? Research shows there's right. no uh, correlation between money and happiness after $75,000 a year annually. Um, and I actually, I, I, sorry to interrupt, I, I talk about this in an earlier Bizzle, uh, Bizzlecast. I think it was the Baudrillard one where I was talking about living in rural Africa 
and how that really changed my ideas about you know materialism and family and happiness and how the you know the poor families I lived with were the most happy and psychologically well-adjusted people I'd ever met in my life. Yeah, and, and how that's rich pretty... people are so screwed up across the world. And that's pretty groundbreaking. And then, so, you know, so like this idea of the career ladder versus what I talk about in the book is kind of, you know, a pond of li lily pads, right? And mm. if you think about a pond of lily pads, you can go in any different direction. There easily isn't a forwards or a backwards, right? You know, our, our entire society is built on you got to go forwards, you got to make more, you got to rise up, you got to get the better job and the, you know, the bigger car and the buy this, buy that, um, you know, go up, you know, like it's all going up, but like, where are you going? <laughs> what are right. you going to do when you get there? Right. And actually um, I, I kind of wish I had like play golf, like go right. on a cruise, like, you know, who cares? You know, the point is to be here now. And that's obviously a very, very Buddhist philosophy, but it's like, who are you now and who are you surround? What, what is your, what is the meaning of your life now? And what are you measuring your life by? Well, I think the lily pad thing is absolutely brilliant. I wish I had worked that in directly to the Taoism podcast because if you look at just the geometry of how that would work if you're a frog, you are moving out in a direction, but you're doing it in a circular or spiral kind of way. And exactly. I, I think that's really the difference between Western and Eastern philosophy or, you know, more specifically between your approach and sort of more traditional approaches is that you should take the spiral route. It's going to take you longer, but you're going to have more experiences, you have a greater field of experience, and you are eventually going to get somewhere, but you're not going in a straight line. It's not a series of, we're kind of taught, I feel, implicitly in our society that not only is our life, our life linear, but that when choices are there to be made, there's like two choices. It's like a fork in the road, and you make that choice. And then there's another fork in the road, and you make that choice. Problem with that is, it, you still, no matter how many choices you make, you're still heading essentially in one direction, um, as opposed to covering lots of different directions, meaning that you can make choices that don't have to result um, inevitably from other choices and you know your career path and my career path and a lot of people who you write about and talk about and know career paths and I mean that's sort of what being a millennial is right yeah totally and um, you know I love that idea and I think like you mentioned going to Africa so a lot of times you know when I speak about the book it's those kind of those it's those experiences um, that really shape what someone wants to do with their life or really shape what some, what, what really matters to someone. It's not the, you know, getting, taking the job that's going to be like the best job for the resume. It's not, you know, doing that. It, it's kind of like those experiences that may seem like, oh, the frog is jumping, like they're going to Botswana, they're going to Argentina, like they're going to work for a nonprofit in India. They're starting their own record company. Right. What are they doing? They're going to a completely different direction. They're jumping sideways. Those are the those are the experiences where you really figure out who you are and what you care about. Yep. So you and and our current kind of career system and our current or Western philosophy in general and Western education system doesn't really support that. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to to support these kind of what seem like it seems like someone's floundering or 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 kind of drifting. But that actually, if it's intentional, you know, I'm not saying you know there's a fine line between intentional exploration. And, and going and, and, and being on vacation or chilling on a beach, right? Well, I'm not saying going and drinking beers on a beach is what you should be doing with right. your life. Um, that's not at all. A lot of people are like, oh, that means you're just wasting time. Like, oh, get your shit together. Like, 
you know, stop traveling. But it's like if you're traveling and it's, you know, grounded in something meaningful, if you're, you're telling stories or you're working, you know, for a nonprofit or, you're, or you're, you're learning about poverty or you're working for an organization or you're working for a business in another country, you're very likely having an experience that really is shaping who you are, what you care about, uh, what you want to do next. So, yeah, in terms of the education system, you know, I often talk about critical thinking and how it's this basic thing that goes back to Socrates, but that just isn't really taught. And, you know, I think there's sort of a subconscious or unspoken reason it's not taught, which is that people don't really want to answer those questions because there's so many dark answers and so many disturbing answers. But the real reason is just that it, it works against you know, sort of our vision or, or, you know, America or the world vision of modern global capitalism and that critical thinking could really upend a lot of that. And, you know, I think a lot of your book sort of implicitly or explicitly talks about people who made decisions in their lives by, as I always say, examining their own premises and critically thinking about where they are and where they want to be. And so that, that that's just not being uh, communicated, even in a lot of colleges. I mean, I guess... For the people you interviewed, I mean, would you say most of them, just just to break it down, and, and it's just a rough estimate, would you say that most of the people you interviewed would have gone to the top, I don't know, 40 or 50 schools in the country? Um, the majority. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, some are dropouts, actually, but um, but I'd, I'd say the majority. I, I, yeah, I'd say the majority are, are definitely not. Yeah, they're definitely going to like pretty elite schools. What other, um, I guess, kind of common links did you find among the different people you're interviewing? Because we haven't really said it, but we're still not really sure what a millennial is, right? It's sort of, it's a useful tool of analysis and you can sort of roughly estimate the generation or the age. People were tied together in your book by many factors other than just age, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I mean, generally the, the term, I mean, I, I use just for the purposes of demographics is people born in the 80s and 90s, which is generally what people like to, you know, I think that's the, the common New York Times, if you will, <laughs> accepted definition, uh, you know, Gen, Gen X being people born in the, um, you know, 70, 70 through, uh, you know, in the 70s, boomers before that, and of course now Gen Z, people born in the 2000s. You know, for me, I think the common similarities are are, are definitely kind of not, not willing to kind of adhere to the traditional kind of career ladder, people wanting experiences, people wanting to make a difference. So really, actually, like a lot of studies around millennials show that you know, millennials would take a pay cut to find work that matches their values, um, that people want to use their skills for good. So yeah, I definitely found that people are looking for kind of something that tells them to take a different path and helps them figure out that path, right? People are not interested in, it's kind of like, go where no man has gone before is, is really could Star be Star Trek, like, baby. Shout out. Yeah, it could be, <laughs> could be the slogan for uh, <laughs> the millennial generation. Um, I'm gonna put some you, Star Trek music in the background when I edit this. By the way, yeah, go, yeah. go where no one has gone before, and I think, and I, and I think that that's that's exciting because you know I see that that's why so many young people are interested in entrepreneurship um, and and starting their own thing and and trying and trying all these different things. Of course, the downside of that is that you know sometimes you need to do the research of of who, who's come before you right. and learn from people that are experts in order to really go where no one's gone before right you can't right. just make up everything from scratch and i think 
you know, one, the one downside of our generation is that we're so impatient, right? I, I think that, you know, people, especially that have been hooked on social media and been using technology most of their lives, it's very hard to tell someone like, look, this is going to take two years or three years or five years to do because people want change to happen right away. So um, one thing that I've learned is that people are really interested in this kind of idea of now. How do I find mm. purpose now? How do mm. I find work that I care about now? Mm. Um, and I think that you can start now, but sometimes it takes a little bit more time. And, and you know, so one thing that I've, I've done in, in my work is, um, you know, kind of trying to take this book and turn it into more of like an interactive workshop. Mm -hmm. So doing a lot of speaking around kind of uh, how to build purpose-driven careers, but also kind of how do you find accountability and how do you build a community of supporters that can help you kind of do these things. Because mm -hmm. I realized that for me, that was the biggest thing was kind of, you know, changing the changing the people that you're around from people that are kind of like, oh, you can't really write a book. Everyone's already done that before. Like, don't quit your job. It's safe to like people that are super supportive and like say, Smiley, keep going or keep writing or keep doing this, you're doing great. Um, I think all of us need those type, type of cheerleaders in our lives. And it might sound kind of corny, but I think it's true. I think who you surround yourself with really matters, you know? And that's actually one of the coolest things about our time at Wesleyan, just to take it back for a second, is that we really did have a lot of allies, right? Oh yeah. And um, you know, when you started Modiba, the music company, uh, and get it when getting it going in Brooklyn, like you had a pretty good community of other musicians and artists and producers that were kind of like had your back, right? Totally. Um, we were lucky in that case, though, because again, working with international musicians, it's such a small market, although it's growing, that we had to have each other's back. Um, yeah. You know, it was like when you did, um, we, uh, for listeners out there, I haven't really talked about this much, but I founded. And ran for a bunch of years, um, co-founded, co-ran with another close friend of mine, uh, Eric Herman, a music company called Modiba, which started uh, as a production company and label. And we put out some great albums with artists like Via Farcatore, who's a blues rock superstar from Mali. Problem was, while we got great critical reviews and even sold a decent amount um, on tour, the money just was not adding up because it was at that time that the record industry was really sort of going downhill. And so we've moved into music management where we're being a lot more um, successful from a financial standpoint and able to work with more artists. And we're even working with artists whose stuff we put out. And, you know, when we were working in the mid 2000s, so, you know, up until now, again, because it's, it, it is a growth market, but it's a slow growth market. Um, People do, you know, there is competition. People do try and work together to the extent they can. And so, for example, we had a bunch of awesome DJ friends. Smiley knows about this because we would go, we would go dancing in New York. But we went to like, you know, like on the river where they would have drummers and dancers and, you know, costumes and art. And, you know, it was like very sort of alternative, you know, non-housey dance scene. Um, musicians and DJs from all over the world. And it was not even that hard to get some of these DJs to do remixes for us because they were so into the music. So we were very lucky, but I did, especially as we grew, get a sense of the wider music industry out there. And you sort of learn a lot of lessons from that. Um, and uh, uh, so anyways, yeah, sorry, didn't, didn't mean to interrupt you there. I just uh, just wanted to throw that in, but you're talking about how when we, were, uh, we, we had the thing going in, in New York, that was before you had your own projects going, but you know, it, it, in some ways, you're in a better position just because you have sort of had the benefit of hindsight before you got your project really going. 
Yeah, and I, you know, I think um, for me, it's been it's been really exciting because you know I'm I'm doing writing and I and the book has been great, but like you said, you kind of have to figure out where the money is, and the money isn't really in writing. Um, it's actually in speaking, um, at least for authors starting out. You know, obviously, if you're Malcolm Gladwell or you know uh, someone like that, you're going to make a lot of money um, from your books, but you know, you got to build your way up to that. So I think for me, I've realized that, oh, actually there is a market, um, both in doing kind of career workshops and speaking about careers at colleges or grad schools and kind of to, to students or to 20 somethings, that's one market, but then also, you know, speaking about millennials in the workplace, which is a very trending topic Mm -hmm. for companies because, you know, in 10 years, 75% of the workforce is going to be you know, 20 and 35 because right. uh, all the baby boomers, our parents' generation is retiring. It's just the demographic shift that's happening. There's a huge gap there, right? Because mm-hmm. um, all our, most most people that are in the workforce, you know, we're, we're older and they're, they're going to be getting older. And, you know, so this new generation is, is kind of coming up with different expectations and the sense of now and the sense of going where no one's gone before, boldly going where no one's gone before. So for me, it's been, it's been interesting to kind of, you know, you, you start your work and then you have to kind of shift constantly because you want to do your work creatively, but you also need to make a living and you got to figure that out. And I'm still figuring it out. You know, I've only been, you know, on this new path for about, well, living in San Francisco three years, but only really starting with the writing and speaking. Right. Um, I mean, the book came out a year ago, so it's been a year. I mean, maybe two years if you want to mm-hmm. say like some of the other blogging and writing I've done and right. starting the prep for the book and the crowdfunding. But right. let's say, you know, a year to two years, I mean, right. and I've and I've had a lot of success in the last year or two, but, you know, in many ways, I consider myself a, a learner and uh, an, an, an amateur and someone kind of just getting going. And I think, you know, the takeaway there is that you just kind of have to be a learner and explorer. And that's one of the things I talk about a lot in my, in my stuff is that, you know, this, this sense that you're really embracing the lifelong learning journey. And, you know, I think traditionally in Western education, it's like, go to school, go to college, and then you're, you're, you've, you're wise, you, you, you know, everything. No, <laughs> right, right. you learn something, every conversation you have, you right. learn something, every book you read, every experience, every time you travel, every job, every, you know, every, every kind of day is another chance to learn. And the people that I know that seem to find like whatever success means to them, or, or, or I, let's not say it's success. Cause I think that's also a very Western, um, concept of money or, or well, again, or, as or, in, as in with the Taoism podcast, success is fine. As long as you don't get trapped and overly defined by your success. Correct. But let's say more like a, a Zen concept or fulfillment or right or uh, realizing your potential, realizing your potential and kind of having this sense of of contentness and, and meaning around you and the people you surround yourself with, the people that seem to have that. And of course, who knows who really has that? That's very, very personal and very spiritual even. Right. Um, but the scene, the people that seem to seem to, to find that, that I, that I know, right. Um, are so humble and, and are, are so humble in their their sense of learning. Right. They right. consider themselves learners just as much as teachers. Right. And they're willing to kind of try new things. They're willing to become teachers, you know, in their 30s, even though they didn't go to school for teaching. You know, like as you were talking about, because you know you're so good with uh, you know education and philosophy and and kind of uh, 
and kind of giving advice that I think it's great that you're kind of making that pivot, right? Or to go into writing later in life or to just constantly kind of be learning and growing, you know? So I think that that's where it's at. It's all about becoming a lifelong learner. There's no one knows everything and no one knows enough to, to stop learning. Um, if anything, I wish it was like, Hey, I wish I could like dole out my Wesleyan education for like 10 years. Cause it's like, I wish I could take a course now and, and kind of just be in that environment and, and see what that's like. Um, cause I want to keep learning, you know? So, well, uh, and, and, you know, I think an underrated part of learning is teaching. Um, and I think people miss everyday opportunities to be mentors or teachers in various ways and that you learn just as much teaching as you do, you know, when you're directly learning and you're doing totally. a lot of that. And I'm involved with tutoring and I'm trying to become a full-time teacher. I went to grad school, love school, love teaching, love learning. Um, and we'll certainly talk about that. And, um, as we kind of move into the final section of the podcast here, um, we had so many topics we wanted to get to, and I think, you know, Smiley and I are hoping that um, if people like it and we enjoy doing it, then maybe, you know, once or twice a month or however much we get a chance, we'll, we'll talk about various topics. But I really wanted to introduce Smiley uh, in this one because we want to do podcasts in the future together and may do other projects and have been doing projects formally or informally together now for... Uh, 15 years, I guess you could say, um, depending on how you want to define a project. So now that you've gotten a sense of Smiley, and I think interestingly, um, this should have been pretty obvious, but I didn't realize until about five seconds ago, which is that I probably talked more about my own personal life in this podcast than any of my solo ones. And it's not surprising because, you know, that comes out when you talk with friends, especially when it's your best buddy who you've known forever and who knows everything about you, basically. And so thank you for that, Smiley. That's been great. Um, yeah. I'd have to listen, but in about seven and a half hours of Bizzlecast, I don't think Modiba ever came up once, even though that was like, you know, one of the most <laughs> crucial extended experiences of my life. Um, but I wanted to wrap up on a little bit of a, of a heady thought, um, or I don't know, maybe it's heady. Maybe, um, it, it's at least interesting. And it has to do with your work and your progression and also mine, which is that... Um, I think when we were in college, at least, there was a sort of a conflation between notions of radical activism and grassroots activism. And for me, since we graduated, I've really learned to separate that. Um, now, radical activism can be a form of bottom-up activism, but I also believe that there's lots of types of bottom-up activism that don't need to be radical or, in another way, don't need to be anti-authoritarian or, you know, fully anti-system. There's a difference between wanting to take down the system and change the system. And, we, you know, we knew a lot of people from school and elsewhere who still believe that the system can be fully taken down. And I don't want to put words into your mouth, but we talk a lot, obviously. I know a lot about you. I know your progression. And, you know, for sure the top-down approach of working for the government was not for you. But I would argue, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that your book is a very grassroots, very bottom-up approach that's not really anti-authoritarian. And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. Because as you know, as liberal as I am, I still do think at least some change in our society needs to happen from within the system, and some from without, but also some within. And you're not telling these people, you know, to, 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 
to drop everything they're doing and pick up their pitchforks, you know? I mean, you talk about being productive and realizing potential, that happens within society. But you're a very liberal guy, politically and socially, and you're very sensitive to these issues. Do you ever find yourself um, just sort of an internal conflict between wanting to reach a lot of people and speak to the masses, but also not compromise your sort of overall you know, political or ideological vision? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I definitely consider myself much more of the bottom up, as you say. Um, but I think especially when it comes to like the political changes and social changes and, um, you know, that we're trying, you know, starting to see with kind of uh, race relations in the United States and, and all of the protests, you know, some of that stuff is so systematic, right? The prison system, police system, like these are things right. that like you can write articles about, but like until those systems change, people are going to be getting locked up, right? People, there's going to be police brutality until like the crime rates change, until like the, until the police department doesn't, isn't like told, put this many people per month in prison so that right. we can make money because the prison is, a, you know, is a, is a corporation and is making profit. People are going to be still getting locked up. <laughs> so you can write about it all you want and protest about it all you want, but that needs to change from a systematic level. Exactly. Um, so I, I think that it, it, but it's a combination because also, you know, I, I was just reading an article recently about, you know, kind of like this new, this new um, movement of like young uh, blacks, uh, civil rights leaders and kind of like a new, and, and through social media, it was like, uh, it was in New York Times Magazine cover story all about, you know, how these kind of uh, folks out of the Ferguson movement have kind of become like the leaders of, or there are no leaders, but like kind of very like vocal folks, fo faces on Twitter, voices on Twitter, I should say, um, with protests and kind of using that tool to like get a kind of get awareness out. So I think that there's, which is really exciting to me because, you know, kind of using new technology and social media and kind of some of the stuff that's in my book about like, you know, carving your own path and getting your word out there and building your audience, even when society's not listening to you, there's, there's so much potential there, right. but it's always a mix, right? It's always going to be, you know, you, you need both. You need, this is the sad thing is when I left DC, part of me was like, people like me need to be here, right? right? right. People like that went, exactly. that we went to school with and people that are, you know, I don't mean to just like, Obama you know, maybe doesn't like, get elected if you don't work there. I mean, I mean, not just you, but not, yeah, exactly. You but take that a few movement, people out of there, then everything's yeah, different. That, that movement of people, or you know, like you know, if all of us move to San Francisco and start, you know, just eating kale all the time, right? Um, you know, the world's going to get worse, <laughs> right? You know, if if people don't become teachers because they think the school system is corrupt, like then the, then then teach then kids are going to not learn about climate change. They're not going to learn about slavery. They're not going to learn about the civil rights movement. They're not going to learn about Taoism and how many and and what really matters in life because, you know, they're just going to have uh, have really unenlightened teachers. So we need good people. We need smart people in, in all these walks of life. Um, but you have to figure out what's right for you. So you have to figure out where you belong and where you can add the most value, right? Yeah. But I think, you know, I try to, I try to reach a wide audience, but I'm definitely, you know, I'm, I'm always going to be on the, the, the side of like, you know, pro-social change, pro kind of uh, increasing equality, uh, increasing opportunity for more people, you know, that's why I try to really ground my message of 
kind of career stuff and purpose and meaning. And, um, you know, I kind of take like basically like doing something for others. That doesn't mean like you have to go work in a village somewhere or help people that are starving. I'm not saying that, but it's about it's about the sense of kind of service right. or helping others or just making the world a better place. Right. I don't care really what people do in terms of whether it's environment or poverty or, or music or art or or baking pizza or whatever it is, as long as you're pushing society in a better direction. Right. Making people uh, feel better, spreading love, spreading equality, um, you know, making, teaching people, you know, uh, if you, as long as you're moving the needle forward, <laughs> um, that's, that's kind of what matters. Right. I, I but I well, think sometimes, you know, I think, I think sometimes people are like, do whatever. And it's kind of like, yeah, yes. And, you know, like, right. Sometimes people like, uh, do whatever. Well, if you're just going to sit there in the sun all day or like, Right. I, I think there has to be some acknowledgement that there are other people out there and that other people need your help, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, and just to sort of bring it back around to Wesleyan or just, you know, just people who are very left-wing in general, um, you know, when you go to a liberal arts school, uh, there are, you know, very liberal artsy academic lingo that, you know, people start adopting. Obviously problematic It was probably the most... Um, common one and now everyone uses problematic but that was always the way in class for someone to sound smart right was to use the word problematic um i talked about reification in some of my other podcasts as well as one of those terms but another one is transgressive um and the notion of transgressive is that you're are are pushing at or trying to push through certain boundaries problem is i find that a lot of what I would call, you know, like super hyper activists, they think you ha uh, being transgressive means removing yourself from the mainstream and system as much as possible. But really all you're doing is removing yourself and, and not really contribute anything. In fact, by definition, in order to be transgressive, and just to explain it really quickly, transgressive is a term that postmodern and post-structuralist thinkers and writers talk about a lot specifically in the sense of acknowledging that as radical as your politics are, some of this change has to come through the system. And so in order to address that, you need to act in ways that are transgressive, where you're in the system, but you're pushing the boundaries of where the system is. And I think, I won't go on too much of a rant here, um, but you know, I think one of the things that really bothered me about some of the activism in college and continues to bother me, even just looking at Facebook, is that is the clean hands theory. And you probably know what I mean by that smiles, but I'll just explain it really quick, which is that, you know, some people decide that, you know, they're so repulsed by the world that they would rather just keep their hands completely clean, even if it means that their tiny little causes that they're doing aren't really accomplishing anything. Um, as opposed to accepting the fact that it's, we're all in the system anyways. None of us have clean hands just because of the consumerist lives we're living, right? I mean, you couldn't even get out of that even if you wanted to. And so, um, it, obviously, you don't want to get your hands too dirty, but the idea being with activism, being transgressive, is that you got to get your hands a little dirty, which doesn't mean people have to get hurt or suffer. It just means that, you know, there might be some unintended consequences, 
but somehow you know envisioning yourself outside of the system as not having consequences as you pointed out with the example of you know moving to the middle of nowhere or whatever that also has consequences and so um, you know, when it comes to left-wing activism, which I'm generally very in support of, although I would really call myself a progressive more than a leftist at this point, um, but um, whatever you want to call it, um, there is this sort of tension between, I, I, I think, you know, sort of my and your a little bit more practical approaches versus just um, very um, outside the lines approaches, which can be important. And I pointed out, like, revolutions may start happening at some point in the near future because of this global economic situation. But at the very least, we need to have smart, competent people in the system trying to change from within. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think uh, I think there are a lot of people that have been waiting a long time for, you know, some parts of the system to change, and and they yeah. haven't. Yeah. So it can be quite that can be quite uh, ner- you know uh, really awful for some people. Yeah, but well, hold on. Let me just jump in on that really quickly though. But let's just take Baltimore, right? For example, the riots in Baltimore, which was was that last week or two weeks ago. Um, mm-hmm. And the big problem, of course, wasn't just the burning down and stuff. It was the media coverage, right? Which was that the media was covering the you know, the areas that were getting burnt down and not the majority of people who were peacefully protesting and who continued to peacefully protest. And what's crazy is even when there were peaceful protests going on a few days after the riot stopped, I'd be sitting in a bar and there'd be some, you know, like, like Philadelphia, you know, like, you know, right wing Philadelphia, white trash, whatever, like being not just totally racist, but essentially saying that they're the same as the people who are burning down the buildings. And so... You know, if we had more people in positions of power, like, let's say, an executive producer at CNN, for example, um, you know, I mean, if you just have some well-placed people, that whole narrative can change. Yeah. Um, And, um, but the problem is, you you know, it's, they always say, you know, the best people to be president would never want to be president. And that's why they would be the best to be president, right? That's like the... Uh, you know, the old, uh, the, you know, the old kind of saying or, or, or traditional wisdom there, and it's the same thing with corporations. The best people to be CEOs aren't necessarily the type of people who want to be CEOs. Sure, um, exactly. And so you're sort of stuck in that conundrum. But I think with your approach in both your book and your talks and, and other things you're writing and the camps and, and conferences that you run, is to try and strike a balance there that you can and should be a professional person with career objectives, but then it doesn't need to define you or limit you in that you can create change from within. And for me, that's what's really, one of the things that's very attractive about your, your book and your work. Yeah, yeah, I, and I love, and I like, yeah, that, thanks for saying that. And I think like, you know, the point that you made about um, you have to get your hands dirty. I mean, you have to, have you to. have to piss people off. I have I, to piss people of, off. One of the things that I think a lot of people, you know, uh, ask me about with the writing is like, I think every time I write, I think the best writing, it like polarizes, right? Um, the best yeah. work does. The best, the, all of the best uh, art, work of arts or, or even works of leadership polarize. Like you're going to piss some people off. And there's this culture on Facebook, and we can get into Facebook at another time because there's a lot to say. Um, because I think in general, Facebook is making us depressed and stupider um, and bringing us... I mean, I think... Uh, I, I think don't think it's I, making us stupider. But stupid, I do think but I, 
we're, it's definitely it, making us less focused um, yes, and less productive. That's true. That's true. Um, and, and but it's also an incredible tool, and you know, it's helped me kind of share my work and and build my audience. But what I think is damaging is like I see what pe- what people try to do on Facebook is like prove that they know something or that they're aware of something, either they're a, uh, you know on a certain team or have a certain philosophy, and it's like who 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 are you? What are we proving here? You know, like. Well, what and this is, is this? And this the great is, arbiter of like of politics, or the great arbiter of GMOs, or the great arbiter of uh, you know f- quotes, or who 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 are we trying to impress here? And yeah, I and, find you know like I, I just I think it's just like there's there's no end to it, and it's kind of like uh, what's the point? And I think the point is to do something that matters, and if you do something that matters. Some people are going to be infuriated by it, and some people are going to think it's amazing, and, and you're going to change some people's lives. So, well, I, and, I think- and and I, I it, just even the way you phrase that, but what you're saying, that's exactly why I felt compelled to do the Joss Whedon podcast because there was a very small scene in the movie. I won't rehash it. You guys can listen to Bizzlecast uh, episode 5.0, which where I defend Joss Whedon and, and um, the new Avengers movie. There's a scene with Scarlett Johansson and Mark Ruffalo where it seems that Scarlett may be implying that since she's been sterilized, she's somehow some sort of monster. When really she's saying she's been a monster as an assassin and she's trying to relate to the Hulk, for God's sakes, who's like the ultimate monster. So she probably oversells it. And then this led on you know Jezebel and all of these feminist, so-called feminist sites to crush Joss Whedon based on essentially a two-minute conversation that had almost nothing to do with the movie. And who anyone who knows Joss Whedon stuff is ridiculous. He's like an incredible uber feminist, um, as mainstream directors go. But the point being, the whole reason I got I had to do it or felt I did was because people were posting these articles, and I'm like, first of all, I don't think you've even seen the movie. You probably don't even care about Marvel stuff. So why don't you just shut up? But secondly, what are you really fighting for? And that's what I, I get to. You know, that's probably the angriest I've ever been in a podcast. And I, where I'm, I, I say basically what you say and. You know, forget the exact issue, but examine what you're really fighting for here. If you want to make a career choice based around a single issue, then go for it. But if you want to be a well-rounded, well-informed progressive, in my opinion, you have to take a wider view of reality. But that's just me. And that if you're going to take a radical position on something, you better make damn well sure that you're picking the right thing to take a radical position on in terms of its importance and relevance. Yeah, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know the scene. But you know, I think I think now it's like um, there was an article recently about like this whole like public shaming online, mm-hmm. and so what's happening? It's so easy to shame someone. So it's so easy for us, like, uh, and this happens on the left and the right. So you pick the sound clip happens, right? The someone says something that's mis, you know, they 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 say the thing that offends women. They say the thing that offends. Uh, black people, or they say the thing that offends um, who, or whoever, and it gets blasted everywhere, and it just becomes like this thing. Right, and it's like that—that that is the instance, rather than going to the root of the social issue or the policy or the actual. You know, it's it, that that thing's so easy for people to press like on or press share on or to get like, you know, it's like, it's this firestorm and it's like, I'm not sure it's making humanity better. 
it's, it's just too easy to post an article without reading it too. You know, or the headline is quick and it's like, yeah. I, I'm in favor of this. Like, I want to show you that I'm, I'm, I do the, I'm guilty of this stuff too, of course. Well, you know, uh, I mean, I, it, but it's, it's like, I, I, I'm not sure that it's really pushing. I'm not sure it's moving the needle forward. No. Um, you well, know, it, although I do think it's important to share your ideas, but like, you know, for instance, I would rather everyone like articulate, um, you know, write a blog post about how they feel about something or like write a hard post about potential solutions for like, we're going to get on Josh Whedon about some scene in a movie. Like, why don't we talk about like equal pay for equal work? Or right. why don't we talk about like more women having, uh, you know, maternity leave compared to like European countries? Because right. like most companies in the U.S. give women like a month off, which is bullshit. So it's like, why don't we talk about real stuff rather than like going on and on of like, I'm going to prove I'm a feminist because of the scene in the movie. That's like, oh, come on. Like, that doesn't make yeah. any sense. But that's easy for society to do. It takes very little effort. Right. Whereas like actually figuring out how we could change real society and real programs or, or start a new business that does that or start a new organization does that. It's like, actually, that would require more work, more research. Yeah. I'd probably have to spend a weekend doing that, maybe yeah. a week, maybe a year. I'm not yeah. going to do that. I'll just post this article on Facebook. Yeah. Well, and that's why, and uh, I'll use this as, um, as a lead into, a, into the wrap-up and for the tease for, for um, uh, uh, what will be the next step here. But just what you were saying about Facebook, people get on me. They're like, why do you keep posting articles about, you know, Marvel and Star Wars and um, sports. And I'm like, you know what? My response is, how many reposts of a Huff Post article do there need to be? You know, like I literally have 1,200 friends posting political articles all day. Like I yeah. get enough of that, and everyone's getting enough of that. Um, and you know, I, again, I, you got you can listen to past Biddlecast, but. There's more going on sometimes in, in mainstream that is transgressive that's not being acknowledged. And I'm always trying to get people, if they, even if they don't like comic book movies, this will be my one plug here, <laughs> is to see Captain America, The Winter Soldier last year, where in the end, for real, he is Edward Snowden. Like literally, like he and, and Scarlet together in, download the entire intelligence apparatus onto the internet because of how corrupt it is. And yet, because he's named Captain America and because of how it's framed and the narrative and the story, we're behind him. But if you just switched it out with Edward Snowden, people would have a totally different reaction. But it's exactly the same thing. Actually, what Cap did was actually more radical because Edward Snowden leaked some secrets. Cap actually leaked all of the secrets. So, you know, there's a lot of, of, of uh, stuff pretending to be transgressive, which is not. And then there's lots of stuff that looks like there's no way could be transgressive that is. Um, and, and as you said, and as we've been talking about, people need to sort of examine what they're really fighting for here. And so, um, buddy, this was awesome. Um, this was so much fun, as we knew it would be. And we were hoping to get to a lot of fun topics, but we'll do that in the next one as soon as we can. Um, but why don't we just tease for the audience real quick before we sign off some of the stuff that we want to talk about. Throw some stuff out there. The, sorry, was this, this is, uh, topics for the future? Yeah, yeah, because we'll, we'll, you know, this is the, the first official, you know, Bizzle, Smiley, <laughs> whatever cast, but, um, you know, we want to do a shorter one where we just talk about, like, movies and TVs and yeah, we, stuff. Yeah, and, we might yeah. talk about, yeah, some Seinfeld uh, do an ep do an episode on Seinfeld. Might talk about the life coaching industry, the good, the bad, and the ugly mm -hmm. side of that of, of what I've learned over the last year or two. 
um, New York City, mm-hmm. the the dream and the reality of New York City and what it's like to be a twenty something there. Yep. Um, what else? Um, Richard Linklater. Richard Linklater. Yeah, do an episode on on uh, how great of a director Linklater is. Um, um, maybe even talk a little bit about some of the um, the those sort of indie, not so indie movies of the last few years, like um, uh, Birdman and Grand Budapest and, and movies like that. That'd be great. Um, and also why we're so obsessed with The Office and, and Seinfeld. Um, and uh, so we'll talk a bunch about that because we love movies and television. Um, I'd say we talk about books, but <laughs> I don't think we read any of the same books. So uh, maybe we'll do a book club down the road where we'll get Andreas and everyone to read a book but um <laughs> we, well, we uh, gotta have dre on the show oh time. yeah dre dre andreas our, <laughs> our, our buddy the third of the three stooges or three musketeers or whatever you want to call it um who's a teacher lives in massachusetts um with his special lady friend and um uh we'll definitely have him on and i'm gonna have a lot more interviews going forward but i wanted again smiley to be the first because he is my best buddy, and because I love what he's doing, and um, sort of in, an, in a roundabout way, when I did my Taoism podcast, I realized how sort of aligned our philosophies are, even more than I thought before I did that podcast, even though we represent them and, and, and pre- present them in very different ways. Uh, I, I mean, I know you love that podcast, so you must have identified with it in the same way I ad- really identify with your stuff. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I mean, I'm I'm stoked that we're doing this. This is great. I love your uh, I've loved your stuff so far. So to get on here is amazing. I can't wait to do more episodes. Awesome. Well, we're back. Well, we're back, baby. <laughs> um, this is the Digital Red Planet, um, and uh, coming to you live from Philadelphia, San Francisco, just on a Saturday night. Hopefully, be out a robot. by Monday. A robot. We will be hearing from Smiley again soon. Thank him very much for being on the show. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Bizzle. And uh, we will see you soon. Bizzle out. <laughs>